Welcome, welcome, friends, to We Are Mir Costa. I'm Aaron Roberts, your host for this humble show. I don't have a fancy intro or a song yet, and I still have a lot to learn about interviewing people and recording a podcast. However, I'm not going to let the quest for perfection get in the way of something good. We're always learning, you know? This is a show about us. It's about building community between us. Something that I've come to love about Miracosta is that we all have interesting, often wonky paths to getting here. Those different paths, the hurdles we've overcome, our successes and our failures, influence everything we do in our work. In so many ways, we are our students. Many of us struggled in education and experienced not belonging. Many of us relied on family support systems and community to keep going. Despite those struggles, many of us also had a spark moment where it all just clicked. Our students are going through some of those exact same experiences. This show is about those paths, those supports, and those sparks. I also want to talk about what we love about our work. Most of us are overwhelmed with the amount of things that we have to do in any given week. It's easy to forget the important things at the heart of what we do, myself included. And I hope that we can get a chance to talk about some of what we love, love about our work, love about one another, and love about our time with students. So sit back and enjoy these first few episodes before I get an intro and before I learn some basic audio production skills. If there's, if there's one thing, though, that I hope you get from listening to these interviews with your colleagues, it's this. Your unique experience, who you are as a person, your full complex identity, is something that we need at Miracosta. Too often, that's not the message you're getting here, um, both at Miracosta and in the larger academic culture. Reaching out and connecting to one another to learn about and from one another is a small nudge towards changing that culture. And now, here's our show. Welcome, folks. Welcome to We Are Miracosta. I'm here with my very good friend and colleague, someone I have grown here at Miracosta right alongside, Jabi Prescott from our letters department. Jabi, tell us, tell us who you are. Tell us how you got here. What was your journey? What do you want to What do you want to share with us? <laughs> I feel like that's a such a large question. Like I got here in a spaceship, right? Um, like that should I should have some real cool question like that cool cool answer like that more so um how i got here to, to miracosta is you know the journey was it was a trip you know it's like you have the gps in your phone and then like your phone goes dead and so you don't know where you're going and you have to pull over figure out how to charge your phone but the battery's not working like one of those type stories i feel like um but along the way you feel you've learned a lot about yourself right and so i think how i got to maricosta my educational journey has been just that that like it's been an adventure because nothing was ever ever you know what's the word i'm looking for was ever set in stone, right? Like you think that it was going to go one way and then you end up right where you're supposed to be. And I think that's mm. how I think my journey has really been because I'm, I'm a person who started my educational journey teaching at the high school level. And after completing high school, going to teach middle school, becoming a teacher's teacher as an instructional resource teacher, I am now a tenured faculty English professor which Woo! you know uh, and it's like you, my, my, my whole story is that way back in college way 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 back in college um i had always wanted to be a professor i did I, I said oh man i wish i could be a professor and i told um my wife at the time my girlfriend that like oh it'd be really cool if i could be a professor because i had gone into the english building um at my, at my campus and I just really liked the offices that the English professors had like they're always up there seemed to be doing really like cool stuff and then like I met the dean and he was also an, a former English teacher and he like showed me to his office which is way up on like the ninth floor and he was super nice he had his own secretary I was like oh man this dude's living the life up here all these professors and they get the whole summer off are you kidding me like this is this is for me and I get to just talk about books and writing all day and that's what I do right and so it, it, it was really exciting at the time but I was living in a state Virginia where to become a professor at that time was 
was really hard, um, especially on someone who, you know, I had to work full time and go to college full time. And so if I wanted to be a professor, I was going to have to grind a little bit longer to that towards that master's degree um, and not end up making a, a, a paycheck um, for quite some time. And that with financial aid and all these other things, I was just like, you know what? Um, I think I'll, I'll start as a teacher. And just to further that, I later found out that like in Virginia, you have to have like 10 years of experience as an educator before they even think about you as a professor. Okay, not 10 years, it's more like four or five or something like that. But before they'll even think about hiring you, you have to do all of those things, right? Um, and so I was just like, all right, well, I'll start out by being being a middle school teacher. That's what I wanted to be. And then I ended up being a high school teacher. And so, uh, which I loved, I loved all of the moments I had in education. I loved teaching English at the high school level. I loved teaching it at the middle school level for different reasons. Um, I, I liked being an instructor's instructor, right? Working with English teachers to implement um, student-centered work in their classrooms. I mean, there's nothing cooler than you know, working with an educator to bring out the best in them and then observing them bring out the best in their students and the joy that comes from that, right? That, that was a really cool gig, but I really love being a professor. <laughs> you know, I really do. Um, and, and I think a part of the reason is um, in the arena of being a professor, you're seen as an expert and your colleagues see you as an expert. Um, the administrations that you work for see you as an expert. And because of that, you you never feel like you're you're like not being your whole self because everyone around you, including your students, looks to you for the knowledge that they find valuable. And that's that's why I'm in teaching in the first place, is because I, I like to spread knowledge and see people yeah. see the joy in that knowledge. And so I guess my my, my short answer is my, my journey to get here was like, destiny's a strong word, but you know, I love superheroes. So it feels like it was <laughs> destiny, right? Like that, this is where I was destined to be. I don't think that I would find happiness in doing anything else except teaching, you know? I love that, man. And I think like one of the key things that you said in there that I'm finding is so common for a lot of us is that that I work in Miracosta that we don't regret necessarily the stuff that got us here it, it might not have been great it might have been like like to use the the trip analogy like there might have been a pothole or a wrong turn and like a doubling back or something just otherwise not ideal but there were also like lots of really good moments and in those bad moments we learned things we got through them and like where we needed to be is where we ended up you know yeah. or we made we made our places where we needed to be you know like it, it's i think that that's kind of a a uniting theme it feels like in in a lot of our lives and i, I like that you brought that up that like it's what got you so like when you were in I mean, we're kind of going off script for a smidge here, but is there like a, a time where you were like, man, is this the right place? Like, am I, am I where I need to be? Or <laughs> like, was that something that you felt like in the moment usually, or did it take you a while to realize that that place was where you needed to be? Whew. That's a heavy question. Cause like I, at the different intervals that have been my, my career or my education, you know, the, there's been times of, of, of doubt, right? Like, and that doubt coming from um, some form of an obstacle that said, hey, you don't belong here, right? Whether that was um, a high stakes test like the GRE, um, whether that was, you know, a, a instructor who didn't seem to understand what, what you were trying to provide, um, or it was like someone who's supposed, who's supposed to support you. Right. Um, I think I'm, I truly where I am because of the mentors that I've had, like those mentors that at the time I didn't know they were a mentor, but they ended up doing something or saying something that supported me through the end. Um, but I've also had people who, um, who, who may have disguised themselves as a mentor and then ultimately did what was in their best interests 
to serve their career as opposed to mine, right? Um, the the instance I'm thinking about is before I, I truly got into teaching, every, every uh, person who educates in the state of Virginia has to do a, a practicum or an observation or um, a, a teaching internship, right? A student teacher is what most people know that as, as. if you've ever yeah. been in the classroom with a teacher who's had some young college student as their student teacher, you've been there. And so that, that's a huge point in your career as a, as a teacher. It means like you're at the end of your program, which for me was my master's degree, and you're in the, the space where you're actually training as a teacher. You're developing lesson, lesson plans. You're delivering instruction to students. You're um, grading papers. You're having conferences. You're even meeting with parents, which is like, whew, that's, I mean, it's one of those things, right? Um, and at the end, the thought is that you know, when you student teach in a space, it's more likely that you'll end up in that space if you have student taught and done a great job. Or the person who is your, your teacher of record will support you with a reference to um, help you secure your first instruction. And so I, I worked in this place. I, did, I, I thought what I did was a really cool job working with students um, that were in a, an 11th grade classroom. And at the end of it, the teacher of record was like, oh, you did a great job this year. Just here, take my information. I'll be sure to be your reference. And I was like, all right, cool. And so I started sending out all these letters. I, I did an interview and I was waiting all summer long to hear back and I didn't hear anything. And it was like, oh man, is this really gonna happen? I'm gonna have to go get another job. Um, am I really supposed to be a teacher? No one is hiring me. Um, and finally, you know, after waiting, I, I got a call back from this vice principal and he was like, Hey man, um, I'm sorry to tell you, like, you know, we're not going to be able to hire you. And I asked him because I had learned from an interview class that like, if somebody tells you they're not going to give you the position, you should ask them why you got nothing to lose. And so I asked him and he was like, well, look, you know, I, I think you're great. And I thought that you'd be amazing here. So did the principal. But when we reached out to one of your references, they didn't have anything good to say about your teaching. And so what I'm going to say is check your references. And I was like, what? And so my, my, my wife at the time, my girlfriend at the time says, um, no, look at your references. And I looked and of the three people I had listed as a reference, only one of them had ever seen me teach, which was the same individual who had been my, my lead. Um, and so once I removed her and added someone else, um, I, I did actually get a position. And the person I ended up adding was this, um, <laughs> he, he was my instructor for the course. And the course that I was taking for my practicum, because you take a course and there's a professor. And he was a professor on an, on an army base, right? And, and so every, like once a month, I had to drive onto a military base to take this course uh, centered with a lot of other teachers who were also going through their practicum. And we would talk about our instruction and he would come out and observe me. And in fact, he has to do like 120 hours of observation or some crazy number like that. It's probably more like 80, but it feels like 120. Um, and I write him down as my reference. So after I interview at this job, the vice principal at that job that I got hired at, my first job ever, he later relays to me why I got hired, that he had called my reference because he recognized the name. Unbeknown to me, the, my instructor had been a principal at the neighboring high school that I had just applied for for 40 plus years. Everybody knew him. He was like the professional development king and he loved teaching so much that he was now a professor for teachers on an army base, right? <laughs> and so he ends up talking to my vice principal, to the my future vice principal about me for like two hours. And that's the reason why they hired me because this guy had just so much great stuff to say about me as a teacher. And so, you know, even though that, that situation was very bleak because you, I mean, to have someone blatantly lie about your ability is, is the worst thing in the world, right? When you, yeah. when you've worked your entire, you've, suffered through all the things that happened in college, like financial aid, the burden of um, paying for college, going to school um, while working full time. You've taken all the courses, you've earned the grades because like 
at my university was no joke, right? Like a lot of testing, a lot of, you know, classes that you don't even need, but you're paying for. Um, and to go through all that and have someone like just lie blatantly about your ability and then cost you an opportunity to do what you trained your whole life to do was was almost devastating. And right after I found out that news, I mean, I was I was heartbroken. I was in tears. And my, my wife was like, no, you're going to get something. Trust me, you're going to find something. I was like, I know I am. I'm going to start applying right now because that's something I had done throughout my career. Whenever I lost a job or something bad happened, I just, I, I don't dwell on it too long. I just start working at fixing it. And that same day, I got that same call for that interview. And that ended up, you know, that started me and got me to where I am now. If I didn't get that job, I, I can guarantee you, I would not be here right now. Yeah. And I think that's one of the like, like that story tells me something about the those dark times. And I mean, now we know it's not always hunky-dory for everybody after a dark time, you know? So I think it, it, my temptation is to be like, oh, then look, it all worked out, you know? But like, we know half the time for people, it doesn't, you know? But it does remind me that sometimes those, like we place so much emphasis on how like the negative moments that we remember so vividly and how they impact us. And sometimes we're just like, a, a quick minute away from another great thing. Like I think about this a lot with student comments and like, if there's like a, a weird comment and an eval, or even if you have like, um, I've been doing a lot of stuff where I'm inviting the students to work to like co-create the class. And sometimes that means like we're setting, I'm, I'm asking for open feedback on things like canvas layouts and how we want assignments to be posted. And your first feeling is to be sometimes a little like, man, that negative thing, like they asked for this thing that I'm doing badly. And you just feel like it sits with you, you know, but sometimes we've, we put so much pressure on that, that we do miss that. Like, like you, we have to like find a way out. Like your wife was able to kind of like, be like, no, you got to go. You got to keep going. You got to like get up to the next one because like that one could work out. It's just this terrible person that did that to you, you know? Yeah. And it's in those connections, the connections that you had, like you made that relationship with that professor and that he saw you and like true, sounds like truly saw you for who oh, you were. I mean, that, that was the most amazing thing because, you know, when you go to a big university, you, you don't expect that professors notice you or notice your writing. Sometimes you're in classes with like 50 to a hundred people. Um, and that particular class there were, there, there were about 20 of us and he knew all of us really well because, you know, he's in there observing our classes and talking to us about teaching because he's been talking about teaching for the better part of his whole career. I mean, he was a, a principal for 40 years and a teacher for so much longer before that. And now is continuing to teach in his spare and his retirement, you know, so he has, he has seen a lot. And I think that, that, his history as an educator, I, I don't have to have known what he taught like previously to know that he, his style of teaching was always to notice students, right? Like, because mm -hmm. he noticed me. It's not like, it's not like he had to, he could have just punched the clock and just been like, all right, whatever, you, you turned in your documents as long as you did that. Oh yeah, you, you taught in the class, let me check that off. No, he was meticulous about what he yeah. did. And he would have conversations with you about um, your style of teaching and why you chose to teach that way and like um, why this lesson you could have chosen mm -hmm. this lesson or like you know he'd, he'd ask you about like how it felt you know how'd that feel today and that was always his first question how'd that feel today I'm like oh you know I'm a little tired <laughs> like you look like it you you were working for him today he'd always like be very personal about the way that you taught and not just one-on-one -on -one. that's how he taught in the classroom too he often would pair us up and have us talk about our teaching experiences and say, hey, tell tell this student about what you did the other day and you tell that student about what you did the other day. So we're sharing yeah. stories that he's already witnessed and learning from each other's um, successes and mistakes, which yeah. is like, that's what teaching is, you know, learning from your successes and your mistakes and having those conversations, those dialogues about like what, what, good teaching looks like i use quotation marks if you're a listener <laughs> yeah and you know so I, we talked a little bit about like you as a teacher and that's you know i think 
we, what you just led us to is you as a student as well, and what you experienced as a student in a good sense there. But I want to go back a little bit. And I wonder if you can, like, if you could tell us about a time when you felt just really connected or excited about school, or the way I kind of frame it is like, when did you start feeling like an ownership over your education? Like I'm doing, like, I know that I am capable of this and I am excited about doing this thing now. Rather like, like I remember that with um, papers, like writing papers. And when I started to kind of like realize that this is something I want to do is like read these books and write these things. Um, I couldn't turn in something that I felt was not my best work, but that was not always my belief in myself, you know? And I think that moment when I was like, it shifted to be like, no, like I've got to live up to what I know I am capable. Like, what, did you have a moment where you felt that, like either that that early passion or that light bulb or that, that ownership over your work in a sense? You know, it's funny because uh, I, I had it and then I lost it and then I got it again, right? Um, so I, I've always enjoyed going to school. Um, I don't know why I'm crazy like that. And I think it's just because I like I like learning. And, you know, I, I grew up in a house with, a, with a, a large amount of siblings. So being at school, like in a classroom with other people where I could like demonstrate, you know, my knowledge was was always fun to me, um, especially English classes. I mean, where I could read and I can write, I was always at home with that. And, you know, growing up, you know, my, my mom, she had an electric typewriter. So I used to type stories on there all the time. Um, I think early on in my education, I was recognized for my ability to write students by like my sixth grade teacher. She really encouraged us to read and write, read and write, read and write. Those were her, her staples. She just like was honest about it. And then every year after that, I got an English teacher who was really excited about letting us read and write. I mean, I got really lucky for like the history of most of my English teachers. A lot of them were really just like, um, educators who love to be creative when teaching an English course. So um, reading creative stuff, writing creative stuff was like their, their bread and butter. That's where we spent the most time in those classes. Um, I, I did have a few who they, they were a little arduous, a little more writing and grammar heavy, but I've always like enjoyed reading books. And so the I think the light bulb moment for me was when I because I've loved reading books when I realized that I could perhaps write those right like and I started writing um a lot of my teachers uh, in middle and high school would foster that in me um really say oh you should write for this contest um Jabi, you make great stories write this you know hey we're working on the school newspaper you should write an article for it like people would really encourage me anytime there was a writing activity my, my teachers would tap on me to be that person. Um, I never, never really won anything out of those contests. And oftentimes, I, me and my instructors would feel that I was overlooked um, for whatever reason. But I kept writing, you know, and I, I really do. I still write to this day um, whenever I have opportunities. Um, but somewhere along the line, I think I, I lost that love for, for writing. And I think that happened um, sort of in college just because I, I didn't have the time you know like you know between studying going to work and you know my social life it just I, I didn't write as much in the summer I did and I think I refound my love for writing in my later years um where um my wife was reading something I had written and she was like you need to turn that into a story and finish it and so she would be on me about writing like you should finish it you should finish it it's so good and I finally did start finishing a lot of the pieces um, that I've written, but still, you know, no, no publications yet. I still work at it because that's what writers do, you know. But it, it sounds like you have a wonderful partner as well, right? Who's, uh, I mean, she's, she's awesome. <laughs> and I, I have my, my wife is as well, like a person that just is making you the best you, you know, oh, making yeah. sure you're your best self. Yeah, she does. She awesome. fuels my creativity. I always tell her she she is my muse. And so I want to, so negative stuff now, unfortunately, I want to dive into <laughs> a few, few negative parts because really I think so many of our students, um, I, I know that my students relate to me expressing when I struggled in school and mm -hmm. I was not a good student. Um, 
like I struggled in math and, and biology and chemistry, uh, subjects that were primarily memorization focused and homework focused. Um, just, I did not want to sit down and take the time. I did not know how to sit down and take the time to learn that way. There was not a lot of like active learning or whatever. And I wanted to read my books. I just read my novel in the class and math and didn't do my homework. Um, was so really just not a great student. And I, so it was, I struggled with that, but I had that light bulb moment, right? When I went off to college, mostly because my wife, my my girlfriend at the time in high school, but my wife had that kind of light bulb moment. And I remember in college, there's, there's something about when you don't, when you are not doing well at something and you don't think you can do well, that is one feeling. But when you're not doing well at something and you know you could, because there, but there's a barrier, there's an obstacle. Like in my case, it was a book, a, a, an expensive set of linguistics books. I had to buy two and they were like so, so much money. And I was doing all these other things in my like senior year of college. I was so stressed out. I was getting sick. And I just remember like, I'm going to fail this class that is important to graduate because I cannot get this book. And because this subject is, it was linguistics, it's already primed for failure. And that feeling, I just remember feeling like, like economically I am suffering in a way that I didn't have to, and it was not allowing me to be my best, you know? So I, I, and that's just my version, but I'm wondering if you have something like in your experience where you had that your path was thrown off a bit or the struggle got real or a time maybe you felt like kind of left out or discouraged by, by education. Oh yeah. So, you know, the 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 great gatekeepers of college are always standardized tests that cost a lot of money you know <laughs> that's yeah. the great gatekeeper the great weeder outer of good people who should be involved in a career and have you know studied really hard to do it and so you know like like mo- many of our our students i was a first generation college student and you know financial aid was what i had to get through college that's that's what paid for it that and me working all the time um, and so um my, my i think my roadblock moment or that that great danger just stemmed from my own upbringing so i i always struggled in math class um tremendously and that wasn't from not doing the work i would often go home i'd work really hard and i would only ever finish like a problem or two and then i would always like turn in my homework it would be wrong I take tests, I get D's and F's. And so in my other classes, when you would get my report card, if you would see one of my report cards from probably elementary to all the way through high school, it'd be A's and B's in all my other courses. And math was like a D or F, um, except, yeah. except geometry. I think I got a C in there, but like the, the teacher was just glad that I sat and didn't mess with him, but that's another story. Um, I, I failed geometry <laughs> twice, man. I failed, oh, man. Ge- I failed a whole year of geometry and a semester. <laughs> so I feel you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's how it was, and so I mean there were there are times where like my uh, I mean, I've been asked to go to the board and write on the board, and the problem is oh. wrong, and like the teacher like just made fun of me, like don't ever try math, and so I was like whatever I knew that I was going to college, and so I, whatever I studied. I knew that it would not be math-based. If there was a class that had math with it, I was not going to take that course, right? Um, I got there my freshman year. I took one course, a finance course. I studied really hard for that finance course. I would come home from class every day. I took my first semester at college, excuse me, my second semester, um, because my advisor at the time said, if you're not good at math, do your second semester once you're comfortable and you can take less courses. And he's like, and take your easy courses then, send it around that math course. And so I would, I would return from math class every day. I would work on homework all night, wake up the next morning, work on it again, go to the tutorial center for it. And like, I squeezed through that class with a C. And that was the last math course I ever took uh-huh. in my entire life. <laughs> and so get to, to, to my graduate year, um, in order to get into graduate school, you have to take the GRE, which has two parts, um, one part English, one part math. Um, I studied to, to work on that math GRE for like several, 
what felt like months um, trying to prepare for this test. And I took it and I failed. I did really, I did well on the English, but I failed the math and I was heartbroken because I was right there at the end before um, like the application to get into grad school was due and I failed this test. Um, the test cost $350, which yeah, dude. was most of my paycheck. And so like I, after I paid for it, I was officially broke. I couldn't even afford to take the test a second time if I wanted to. And even if I could, I still wouldn't pass the math. And yeah. so there was this moment where I was just like, this is not going to happen. I'm, I'm never going to be able to get my master's degree. I'm not going to be able to complete teaching because I don't have any more financial aid to cover my undergraduate degree. Um, and then I started thinking about the other classes that I had failed and maybe I'd have more money or like maybe I shouldn't even come here. Like, you know, there's the, the spiral, spiral, the, all the spiral, <laughs> all the way down. Right. Like, and it, it was, it was disheartening because, you know, testing I don't believe in standardized testing because of that right like I don't administer tests in my class I never have I never will um uh, I you know when I taught high school uh, I was the one they called in as the closer to teach students how to take tests um and be confident about test taking because they retained all the knowledge that the teachers gave to them and they didn't need any more than themselves to pass it right because I solely did believe in that because even though I failed that test, I would later go on to pass a test, right? And, and with all of my muster to, to get in at the last minute. But that moment like was, was crushing for me because I, I really thought that I was just like, I was gonna go home to Boston and return a complete failure because I didn't complete college because of a math test, like a math test like that, you know? The one and thing I know you spend your whole life colleagues are like, ah, you know, but it's real, it's real, it's real, you know? it's true. Like, and I, and there has to be another way, right? Like, now if that math test they had given me was like, hey, you're gonna come in and you're gonna talk to us about all of the fears about this thing, this subject that you did not ever take in college, but you're gonna show us mastery in all the courses you took to be an educator of English and you're good, then fine then. But like testing shouldn't be the only option to show competency, right? Like oh, standardized testing, a multiple choice. There were tests, there were questions on there that I never saw in any of the practice books I ever saw. There was a, a, a calculation I had to do to this day. I still don't know what type of math that was. That's how hard it was. I was just like, I don't know what this is. And so I just, I guess that's all I could do. <laughs> And, and I, on that GRE math, there, so the, the two two things I think on the GRE, one, I mean, I'm really glad that a lot of schools are re not requiring that anymore. I know the it's UCs so awesome. have pretty much gotten rid of it. So that's one thing, but um, the math and vocabulary split is also fascinating because math, we, I think we think of, many people think of math as this objective thing. And I think our, I'd love to have our math colleagues weigh in on that because we know it's not. And how people are taught math is not objective. And how people are experiencing math as students is not this clear cut, simple thing that anybody can do, right? And I think the vocab is even more problematic, right? And that's one that I did well on, but, but like that is for white English speaking middle and upper class students who have had, or in my case, just had a lot of books to read, had read a lot of books. If you, and I think many of us got by from having read a lot of books, but some of those words, it's like the fact that vocab can say, if you are a good, you will be a good grad student because you know, many words <laughs> like that alone. <laughs> so many of my students, many of my students in their English classes come in and say they want to increase their vocabulary. And I understand that that's what they want. But I also want, I, I kind of push back a little bit and be like, you know, that's not your, the, the extent of your vocabulary is not determining if you're, uh, if you are good, it is not this value that we need to place on it, you know, yeah. but yeah, that test is deeply flawed and, and same deal. Like, 
paying for GRE scores, paying for to get the score sent. Once you pay for the test, you got to pay for the scores to get sent to sent other to schools. You. Oh. Yeah. We'll send to like the college you're applying to. They got it's this much money to send each test and then which really it's just a button they click to look on a website. Yeah, I mean, I already paid for it. Shouldn't that come? Like, shouldn't it answer the, my results yeah. come with the first payment? I feel you. And, and, uh, and like application fees and all that stuff that just is a barrier, you know? I mean, uh, there's one style of test in Virginia, the, the teaching certification test, the Praxis. It's actually a, a sliding scale test. Your score is based off of how everyone else did on the test that day. Like, so that means if I did just as well as someone who took it on another day and passed because the people who took it on my day did slightly better, I failed like that. Who, how do you even measure that? Like useless, useless. <laughs> how do you even measure <laughs> that this fraction of students did not do well? Like, and then as a result, no, you have to try again and do just as good as everyone else who took it on the same day. Yeah. Right. Like that's, what <laughs> and i i love though that we have we have many people that i can name in this school that either did horrible on the vocab horrible on the math i did horrible on the math i i mean it was like low percentile you know like if if the school actually wanted to look at the math that i applied to it would not have been successful for me <laughs> um kristen my wife kristen aced it you know she's just math was her thing she's just so good at it and for her it was like no problem, you know, but there are people that, and that we work with that have had bad on the math, bad on the vocab, failed a class to this, and they're phenomenal educators. Exactly. Right. right. It means it nothing change. about your ability. It doesn't to do mean do. anything. And yeah. you, you, I, honestly, once you become an educator, that's probably the last big test you'll ever have to sit through Pretty ever. Much. And it doesn't, <laughs> teach you anything except how to manage stress right <laughs> like... so when you were going through some of these moments or you had you know you had those like we already kind of touched on this a bit when you had the uh, the the reference that just really did not come through and lied and told things that that really tanked your chances and it's that low point or in this test situation this low point what kept you going in those times what things did you turn to <laughs> You know, we've already talked about our wives, but my, my wife is like the best champion of everything that I do. Um, always has been. That's why I married her. I wasn't going to let anybody else get that uh, because she just, she is a supreme motivator. Um, she, if, if I struggle, she 100% cheerleads me back into what I need to get done. Um, she, she, you know, she often reminds me that like, you know, I chose this path for a reason, right? Um, and by choosing it that it is the right path right um yeah. but also she's just like she doesn't let me get down on myself like she's not gonna let me be upset she always recognizes when i'm upset so she's not gonna let me be upset she often will you know ensure that i'm doing something to to take my mind off of it so that i can later on put the abilities i have to work because that's usually what it takes for me like when i'm down if she if she finds a way to cheer me up I'm cheerful and I use that energy to be creative again, right? Um, and, and so she's a, a huge um, reason for that. Um, and if there's anything else, it's just, I think it would be uh, my ability to, to write about what I'm going through, right? Like I, I channel a lot into my writing, whether it's my creative writing, poetry, I write hip hop, um, I write articles, I, I, I a lot of the time I'm reading comic books. So like a lot of the, those stories are inspirational or motivational. Um, I also like to read, you know, personal narratives by people who have also, you know, struggled or seen adversity, right? Because, you know, my, my life's been filled with, with struggle and adversity, a, a ton of it. Um, and, you know, having someone by your side to, to go through that together with is I think really cool. And that all of us are afforded that opportunity. Um, but once you have it, it, you're able to navigate struggle and adversity a little, a lot better because you have a second mind on it. Um, and uh, for a lot of the time, you know, uh, I think I felt like I, I was, I was put in teaching for a reason. You know, I did not know I'd be really good at teaching until the first day that I did it. 
right? Like officially when I was in my first classroom, my first day, that's when I knew like, oh man, I think I can do this every day. And that's exactly what I said to my wife when I came home. I was like, that was so fun today. I think I can do this every single day. I really do love teaching. Um, and I do, I, I love being in the classroom. And so that that's like maybe a third motivator. Like the fact that I get to be in, be in a classroom working with yeah. students is, you know, a supreme motivator for me. Like I, I thought that when I was studying it in college, like, oh, maybe I can pass on what I've learned to others and they'll value it and be able to succeed at their dreams. But to actually see that come true and, you know, have these definitive moments where that was, was you know, that my teaching changed someone's life or this piece of instruction I built by talking to my colleague or talking with my wife and that we put this whole thing together and then we delivered it. And students, not just one, but more, were they benefited from that and then went on to teach it to others. I mean, that's super cool, right? Like that's, you know, that's how you get your name etched into the history books, right? Like, a, you know, longevity, a legacy, right? Is that you've taught something that someone went on and taught to someone else and they, and they gave you credit for it. Like, this is where I learned from him and I'm teaching it to you now so that it can change your life. I mean, I think that's, fully important so those I think those three things are truly what like kind of keep me going I love it man I love it and you know I think we are we're, we're similar in a lot of ways you know and I look at our backgrounds and I like literal backgrounds and I'm like we got like Spider-Man Spider-Man you know Black Panther Black <laughs> Panther we got we got like our our books our comics our posters our things that we love like we I think we have a lot in common in our values on teaching but there is you know my, what I love about talking to you about this kind of stuff is that one, you've been in many places in education in in different states. We both have experienced education in different states, but you've experienced as a teacher in many roles and in many levels. And I think that gives you a really cool insight on a lot of this stuff. Um, but also like for me, I growing up in like middle to lower class, working class, white America is as a student means that my education is my my perspective on education is always going to be different you know and it's it's not so i wonder what do you see as some things in all of the experiences you've had both as student as a teacher in all these levels as a person what are things you see as like problems and how we educate our students or how we were educated ourselves can my answer be the whole thing? Yeah, so that's another weighty question. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a weighty question, but like, you know, uh, lately and the, in this latter part of my career, you know, uh, now that I've looked at and, and understood the foundations of why education was built in the first place, it's a lot of the time makes me feel like, 95% of what teachers and educators and administrators try to apply is already based off a foundation that is inherently racist, right? And so if we already know that, I don't know how we could possibly continue to apply anything learned from the initial foundation to what we are doing now. Like that, it's just, it is not going to continue to further any generation, right? Um, the the way our like our from our initial parts of education with students and and to all the way up until our universities, a lot of the things that are built there are still built on racist foundations that exclude students, um, put educators in positions to not do their best, that allows certain administrations to get away with you know, breaking the law and injustices among students, um, certain districts to usurp resources that are supposed to go toward helping students in need and utilize them in areas that, you know, don't really need them and then just waste them and don't use them at all. And thus more students are suffering. Um, and then, you know, at, at higher education, uh, some of the courses and the way we set up students to, to go to college 
and in some cases walk out with six figures worth of debt and no opportunities to earn a career is absurd right like it's just completely yeah. absurd and and all leads back to its racist foundation so any issue that you find in education today if there's an article about it if there's a topic about it if somebody's writing about it you can directly trace it back to the foundations of education in the first place and so 95 percent, right now there is the five percent right where there are some aspects that had been created in a way to combat the initial or foundation no racism of education that are seeing dividends and allowing students and dividends is the wrong word but seeing success um, because students are engaged with those cultural styles of teaching not just students of color but all students that includes the the, the foundational students who the initial education was set up for in the first place right which is traditionally you know white males of affluence right even they want to learn about culture right and so the there's some things like the, uh, you know culture equity um learning about the true history of the united states um learning about those other places and people who make up the americas like there's so much that um, scholars who discuss cultural responsiveness and cultural um, relevance um, that that matters to education and um, allows us to develop powerful students who have authenticated voices and are able to pursue their dreams and you know encourage others and motivate others to pursue their dreams because that's like. I thought that's what we we're all looking for on this, you know, on this earth, this opportunity to pursue our dreams. That's what college says they have. That's what is in every mission statement. So why aren't we doing those things, right? Why are there still programs that you know, at, at a university level that are designed to weed students out, right? Like that's, that's crazy to think that a student can have a dream of wanting to be a nurse and then be weeded out because they don't meet the high pressures of testing or the high pressures of um, note taking or um, essay writing, right? Um, why is it that tests like the GRE or um, any of the other high stakes licensing tests, you know, weed students out and say, oh, you know, you can't afford it. So maybe next year, you know, or they just keep failing it. Like how many people didn't have the resilience that you and I had and just said, nah, I can't do it. You know, and they just, they, they pursue something else because this test said, nah, you can't do it. Right. Um, so everything. <laughs> everything. And you know, I, I 95%. <laughs> <laughs> just the other day I was I had on here um, Jessica Perez Corona from the Writing Center and we were talking about um, adv like students advocating for themselves and, and us as instructors like what you said a minute ago is we have education that can empower students and give them and like show them their voice that they have and, and, and get them using that voice and, and speaking up speaking out pushing for things but we as a system don't listen to them. You know, our system does, no. it, it might, we might have silo siloed individuals who encourage that in students. And we have a, a broader institution that does not always listen to that. And I'm not calling out Miracosta specifically here. I mean, we probably have our, our spots where we do need to do better on that, but just as a whole, right? Like uh, an and a student who is willing to advocate for themselves is a dangerous student in the eyes of some people, you know, and that's the problem. If that's the, if that's the way we view students and we're, we're, we're asking them to advocate for themselves and asking them to be an active participant in their education and, and helping them do that. And then they're getting this, the, the opposite messaging from the rest of the system, you know, the rest of the world they interact with in education, then we are not like, that's a failure of us as, as people that that system has not changed. That's the, like the foundation metaphor you used a minute ago, I think is true of that. Like we can, we just built a really great addition uh, on our, we built like a great deck 
and uh, put in a pool and we redid a bathroom, but like the foundation is crumbling. Why, yeah. why, why would I spend the thousands of dollars on a bath? You know what I mean? Without fixing the foundation. So I think we can, we have these like targeted, amazing things that are advocating for students, getting students in that position and empowering them and lighting them up. And then the, the world, the, the school as a, as a whole thing is still on that crumbling set of foundation yeah. blocks, you know? I agree. Uh, so what do you, what would you fix? That's a giant one. There's so many to fix. You can't fix all of them, I know. But but what is something like if you wanted to make that a better system for students? What would it? What is like something that you think would be like a core component or tenant of that system? Hmm. Listening to students more. You know, they they often have the answers, but not just listening to them. I think implementation is really important throughout education. Um, you, you can sit in a lot of rooms where uh, individuals say, yes, let's do that. And you have the solution that will work to better uh, your students, to make your faculty feel appreciated, to make all parties, all stakeholders at the school feel on par with one another, right? Um, but the implementation is always super slow, right? or not at all, like we'll all say things and then we leave the room and then it just kind of never, nobody ever gets the legwork moving on said thing, right? And so I think implementation is important. As educators, we sit through a tremendous amount of professional development, a lot of it. However, it, we are rarely provided with the time to implement said professional development. And often are in certain areas you can be encouraged to complete the professional development as a box to check not as actual implementation to support you in your career and support your students and so you know implementation i think is 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 one key part but implementation alongside remaining equitable and putting your students first right remaining student-centered what is best for our students based off the information we have in front of us and how much further can we go to research what is best for our students in order to implement what is best for them because you know we both grew up in an education system that was more or less drill or kill right like here's these worksheets everybody gets the same worksheet everybody memorize, does the worksheet memorize, memorize that worksheet <laughs> um hours of homework so much so that when I first started to teach high school and they told me oh well students don't really get homework anymore I was like really like it's like <laughs> I spent so many hours doing homework like, I spent I've got so many bad grades from not doing homework <laughs> I mean I I I've been in that space too right like well this isn't get done <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I can't sit down and copy from a dictionary definitions of words. Yeah, on, just on definitions. Paper. Encyclopedia Britannica, um, all the things that we had, like this. The we were one of the first generations to have, you know, standardized tests. Things like the standards of learning in Virginia, mm -hmm. the Virginia SOLs. Um, Boston has the MCAS, uh, which I had to take as well when I moved states, um, and it's just like so much testing, right? Like, and so we grew up in that era and where we also did not have voices as students. You could not, you would never think to complain to a teacher about their teaching ability ever, not ever, yeah. because you knew they'd tell your parents and then that would be the end of your world, right? Like, um, that system asks for homogeneity, right? Like having yep. every student is this is treated the same. It's it's effectively colorblind racism, right? Like it you're is, gonna right? all everybody that gets the is gonna be the same test and the same approach, the same worksheets. Everyone has the same role, and your answers should be the same if you are meeting the correct thing. And I think that's like you know I can't get you off here without talking about love, but that is not. Like to me, that's that's the, uh, antithetical to a loving classroom when you are Absolutely. not seeing the individual in front of you. You know, it's so important. And so I'm, uh, I'm. You, may, you had me thinking about. I did this interview um, with a comic artist, and he went to school in Hawaii, 
Um, and when he was in elementary, and I heard this from a lot of, I've heard this from a lot of creatives, people who create either comic books, um, stories, um, who are artists, right? Musicians, all of them. Um, a lot of them have kind of this unifying factor in their, in their elementary and middle schools, which is the teachers or the school that they went to gave them the opportunity to pursue what they thought was interesting in that moment, right? So you could be have a real deep interest in being an artist, being a, a drawer of any kind, whether with paint, charcoal, pencil, pen, whatever, graffiti. And the school would foster that for each individual student in that school and continue to foster it until the student decided, I wanna be interested in this other thing. And then they'd say, you know what, that's great. Let's see if we can give you all the resources to be really interested in that now, right? And so that's, a, I think that's a system that works at any level, right? Regardless of whether elementary, middle, high school, college, community college or university, you know, professors. that idea that like professors <laughs> like that, you could have a one-on-one -on -one with a student and just foster what their joy is. And that's something I think I've, I've, I've been doing to try and show love in the classroom more recently is how can I take my expertise, my knowledge of English and use that to, to foster a student's joy about the thing that they are here to do. So if you wanna be a sociologist, how can I tie English into your joy behind being a sociologist? Mm -hmm. If you wanna go into physical therapy, be a lawyer, a doctor, a filmmaker, a nurse, you know, a horticulturalist, a climate change individual, you wanna grow coral reefs. One of my students is really into coral reefs this year. It's so awesome to learn about. But how can I take what I enjoy and, um, and foster their joy and then continue to help that grow for as long as they're with me. So they have that one experience of joy with what they love. Um, but if that was every student's experience from elementary until they walked across stage with their masters, we'd have students who love to teach like we do. That's the reason why I love what I do because you know, I, like I said in the beginning, I had so many teachers who fostered that love for English class, and I bring all of that that same love to my classroom for my students because I want them to walk away knowing that you know I hear them, I see them, and I believe the best in them. And all I can do is continue to teach you and support you as we do that, and we'll we'll walk hand in hand until. One day you're here and you're my colleague, right? And we're talking about like, remember when you taught that one lesson? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't remember that one. <laughs> because sometimes you just forget them. <laughs> but it's it's one of those interesting, I think, um, moves that could be done to, to, to better the system. It's just, you know, as we say, teach with more love, you know, hear your students and, and foster that joy for learning with them. You know, I think the most successful individuals, I don't even like using that word, right? But the mo whatever we define success as, the people who have the the biggest share of happiness in their life or a, a whatever you want to call it, right? That person usually has a high level of interest in what they're doing, mm -hmm. you know? Because, it, and I think if, as a, you can, you can learn anything you need to learn if you want to, to learn. Yeah, and I think if our if our classes are stamping that out, we're not, if our system is stamping that out, right? Like if you're coming to, on campus for a class and you've got all sorts of like barriers hitting you in the face before you even get into the classroom, and then the classroom is not a space where you feel that you as a person are here, welcome, seen in your your ideas are in the class what you're interested in the music we're playing in the class is your music i walk around now and ask my students and my my in-person class i'm like all right all right kiana what's what's the song i what song are you screaming in the car on your way to work today what are you on the, on your way to class today you know like what what is the song when you get home from work that you're just chilling out you know and i just go around and ask them and i walk up to youtube and pop it on we do group work you know That's and awesome. like but like the class if they they have to be a part of this and their interest and what they want that that exploration and that willingness even if our content is highly structured content their how they approach it can be 
they're interest driven, you know, I, or a project that they're excited about that hits still some of these really important structural pieces. We need to make sure that they have, it's like the, um, the structured spontaneity almost, you know, or structured like interest. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think that that's, I I like that answer that you gave. And I think that's a, a core component of any good professional development of any good community of people as people that want to do it that want to be yeah. there, that want to keep going, that will go on their own after the class is done and do more stuff because they liked it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So a couple of final ones here. Uh, what is something like when you were starting school, what's something you wish you heard? What's a piece of advice that you would give yourself when you were a student or any student that you work with that's starting college? What's a piece of advice you'd leave them with? Whew. Make okay so there's there's kind of two so based off what we were, we've been talking about today make more time to read in, in any form you know like I, I wish when I first started college that and I did read a lot but along the way I lost my love for reading and I think if I had made more time to read I perhaps would have stumbled across something um, to make my journey a bit easier, right? And that's different forms of reading, not just the textbooks that are provided by your professors, but in today's information age, you know, study your, your college's scholarship page, uh, learn about finance, you know, like, um, and how to, to manage your money so that someday when you have that career, you can, you're, you're, you're financially literate, um, but making time to, to read in the different forms, turn on closed captioning, subtitles, um, read, do audiobooks, do, do more reading, because I think that helps train your brain to engage when you're in those critical thinking or stressful moments, right? Like the fact that you've, you're constantly training your brain to, to be engaged with something um, prepares you for that. Uh, and the next thing is, you know, don't ever be afraid to ask for help. And even if you don't get your answer, the answer that you want, keep asking for help from different people because you never know where your solution or support is going to come from. Um, you know, I, I, I think in my education at, at college, I found out too late that it was okay to ask for help. And then once I started doing it, um, I started seeing the, the, the networking that I needed for my education to get to where I am today start to open up and people were, su- were supportive, especially my professors who didn't have to be, but also kind of seemed like they never got asked those questions. And so they were like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad to help you. And so a lot of the times we're so afraid to talk to the, the instructors that we have because we feel like there's this barrier, like there's this wall up. He's a professor. If I tell him I'm in trouble, he's just going to write that down somewhere. And then everybody in the whole college is going to know this information about me because because that's how it feels like in high school, right? Like you tell a teacher and then it seems like the whole school knows your problem, right? And it's probably because you told one of your friends and they told other people, not your teacher. But at the university level, often professors, you know, uh, they're just like anyone else in your life. They're not a mind reader, so they don't know what's going on. Um, and so by asking for help, they might assist you. That's not to say that some professors may just be a real jerk about telling you no, right? And that's that that's just their problem. That has nothing to do with you. So don't be afraid to ask someone else, not just a professor. Um, I have plenty of members of classified staff help me when I did not have an answer. And I was just like, can you please point me in the right direction? And they're like, all right, sit down, let me see if I can get, and then they were really helpful, right? Um, A lot of other people who worked around campus would assist me. Um, People who sent offices and desks that places I never even heard name, but I was asking for help. They heard me and they assisted me. And that I think is something that like all of us can learn from, right? So, so many times when we, when we feel we have to be right or if we don't know something, we try to cover it up because we feel like an imposter. We're afraid to ask for help. And so I think that's something that if students know early on, if they're just always saying, hey, can you help me? Can you help me? And even if you don't get the right answer, you continue to ask, you're probably going to find out that someone has an answer. And if no one has an answer, then maybe you're in the wrong place and you need to go to someplace else that does have answers for you when you ask, because that's so important in education. 
Oh man, I hear you. And especially our, then as instructors and as staff members as whatever, we're asking constantly, do you need help? You know, yeah. like it's both of us are asking and that's, that's the better world, you know? So I, I, we've been dancing around it. We've been tipping a tippy toeing on it. We've been dipping our toes in uh, a lot of feet metaphors going on here. But <laughs> I want your, I want your heart. What do you love about your work? Can I say everything again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I truly do just love working with students in the classroom, you know, answering their questions and guiding them is some of the most fun I have. Um, I learned so much about students in the world um, through the questions they ask and the writing that they do. And so just like my love for reading growing up was a sense of adventure of places I've never been, it's the same is true with like meeting students and engaging with them. Uh, I get to, you know, I, I get to have empathy for, for their journey, whether good or bad. And then I walk alongside them in the experiences that they've had. You know, one of my students talked about being in um, Rio Montana the other day, and I, I didn't know where that was, you know, super American me, you know, every American assumes when they see a Spanish word, it's like Mexico or South America, right? And so I had to Google it because that's what I do when I read a new place I found out was in Costa Rica. And in this story, she had sh shared that she grew up from across the street from a mango orchard, like that was in her town growing up. And I'm like, I can't even imagine what that looks like, what that smells like, what that must be like, right? Like to be able to walk out your front door and be like, oh, mangoes, right? Like that's super cool. And not something that I would have ever learned about if I was not in a classroom teaching because I, and now I can say, I know a student who's been there, who's done that. And here's what they did, right? And so a lot of, I guess the advice I offer to students is advice that other students gave. It's not any of mine. I'm just the one delivering it. Um, yeah. And that I think is a really cool part about teaching, like the ability to, to walk side by side with students in their teaching, but also to see those moments where they have a light bulb moment, where they've learned something that they've always wanted to learn. And they're like, you taught that to me. Thank you. And that's like, really awesome because yeah. you know a student the other day told me he heard that um, professors have a very thankless job and I don't think that's true my students tell me thank you like after every lesson like I yeah. could tell them something simple that I think is very simple but they're like whoa no one ever said that before thank you I'm like you're welcome that's really awesome. oh yeah. thank you like because they they value the, the the dialogue and I think that's really cool to be able to have conversations with students and um see them grow from the conversations you're having because it also helps you grow as an educator I mean my whole yeah. class is built by my students like I have stuff that I love in there but it's because they loved it when I pitched it and they were like oh make it better in this way and now it's that right like and so that feels really cool to like you know be engaged in conversation throughout generations of students yeah yeah, I, that's amazing. Like it's it's a humility as well to learn from students, I think, and to like see yourself as one with them and not one above them. Yeah. You know, and that and that's I think a, a vital part again, the loving classroom. Yeah. Well, Jabi, I want to thank you so much for being here today. This is always it's always special when we get to talk about stuff, always uh -huh. special when we get to talk about teaching. I mean, so thank you so much. Any final <laughs> no parting, parting shots for us here? Uh, I've been reading a lot of Spider-Man. So with great power comes great responsibility. You know, that's that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> that's our life. That's the job. That's the job. All right, man. Thank you. No problem. All right, friends. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Uh, please check back in. We'll have more episodes coming soon. We have Jabi Prescott. We have Zulema Diaz. We have a who's who, a veritable who's who of Miracostans coming, plus lots of other cool stuff on the horizon. We're just getting started and we're just learning. Um, so thank you once again for listening and please chat with me. I want to hear your thoughts, share some info, share some ideas, uh, share some experiences. What, what connected with you in this episode?